Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year has gone by incredibly quickly, but it's always nice to pause and take stock. What's something you're proud of in 2024 so far? What's something you still want to accomplish this year? I know I'm guilty of falling into a routine and not always thinking about the bigger picture, but as the great Ferris Bueller once said, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you can miss it. So it's crucial to take a moment to celebrate your wins and make adjustments for the rest of the year. Therapy can help you contextualize your progress and set achievable goals for the next six months. As you surely know by now, it's not only for people who have experienced major trauma. Therapy is helpful in all kinds of ways, including learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. If you've been considering trying therapy, check out BetterHelp. It's fully online and was specifically designed to be flexible and customizable to your schedule. To get started, just fill out a brief questionnaire that matches you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash film daily. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Tuesday, April 12th, 2022. On today's episode of the show, we are going to gather around the virtual water cooler and talk about what we've been up to. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm an editor at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film editor and chief film critic, Chris Evangelista. Hello. Chris, what is happening? Uh, it's, what is today? Tuesday? I Time, man. I can't even, can't even track anymore. But um, what have you been up to? Anything interesting? Nothing, man. I don't know. I don't know if you're experiencing this too, but I feel like the the pandemic has officially like broken my tolerance for going anywhere. I mean, I was <laughs> I was already like before the pandemic, I was already a bit of a homebody. You know, I like to stay home. I like to hang out. I like to be, you know, lazy when I'm not working. Mm-hmm. And ever since uh obviously the pandemic isn't over, ever since we've gotten to this period where it's becoming more and more uh, open to, to go back out into the real world. I find myself just like constantly annoyed. Like if I'm out for more than like an hour, I'm just like, Oh, we got to go home. I'm sick of this. <laughs> I'm sick of like being around people and sitting in traffic. Like I got spoiled just being like, you know, having the excuse not to go anywhere. And now when I do go places and my wife says she feels the same way, we're both just like, 
cranky or just like, ugh, I yeah. want to go back home. Like yeah. being out in the world is exhausting now. So. You're used to the to having complete control over your domain, yeah. uh, like living out and then, yeah, knowing, having uh, to be like to interact with people and like, you know, um, just have people exert their uh, small amount of control is like too much to handle. Yeah, I, I definitely relate to that. Yeah, like um, last week, my wife and I, we went to the movies and then we went to Target after and like just doing those two things. I was just like, oh, I'm, I want to go home. I'm sick of this. It was just like, yeah. Yeah, I yeah. definitely feel that. Just like a sense of exhaustion in, for doing like the simplest thing outside of the house <laughs> that I yeah. definitely didn't used to feel before. Um, yeah, I think it's just the, the mental toll that, it, that, <laughs> that it's taken on us. It's a, it's a weird experience to have. But yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So let's see. We haven't really been doing much. I read a book recently, although it's it's almost like more of a novella than a book. It's called The Postman Always Rings Twice by James N. Kane. It came out in 1934. There have been several movie adaptations. I actually probably talked about one of the movie adaptations that I watched a few years ago now. Um, have you read any of James M. Kane's books, Chris? Do you know him as an author? No, I am aware of him and I'm aware of, uh, you know, the postman always rings twice, but no, I've, I've never actually read his work. It's a very short book. Um, I don't even know. I don't have the page count in front of me, but it took me like essentially like one sitting to read. And that that's saying a lot for me. I know that a lot, a lot of people just like curl up in the corner and can like power through a book in a day. And that's not really how I, <laughs> how I operate. Um, but yeah, this one is a, a very short, very punchy little book. It's um, James M. Cain, the, the language that he used, he, he's very much in the, the um, like Dashiell Hammett, like that sort of uh um, aura of writer where they're like classic film noir writers and uh, the postman always tr- rings twice is definitely like one of the classic um, noir stories it's sort of like uh, I don't know almost like um, a story about like uh, these people who have an affair and like the the dirty underbelly of society and and just like the um, like the the uh, white picket fence, you know, sort of clean cut mentality of what you have of like American suburbia. And this, this story just like uh, almost taking a knife and sort of like cutting the bottom out from underneath that and revealing like, Oh, these things are, are actually a little uh, dirtier and grimier than, um, you know, than uh, the first blush might indicate. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's a solid book. It's the, the language, like I said, it's, it's a little punchy. It's a little like uh, short sentences and just sort of like, very to the point and a little, um, a little, uh, pulpy. Yeah. Pulpy and, and almost shocking in some places. Like, yeah. um, you know, you, you expect, or I expect a certain level of, uh, sexism and homophobia and racism and stuff like that from books that were written in this time. But, um, because, uh, of the, the pulp element, I feel like some of that is dialed up a little bit more than usual in here. Wow. And, and this is like a, you know, it's, it's a crime thriller. It's a, it's a, psychological thriller kind of story um so there's definitely some like unseemly situations going on and they like make a lot of allusions to sex without actually like getting graphic about it but um but yeah some of those other elements are definitely dialed up in a way that i uh, wasn't quite expecting but um but yeah it it very much makes sense for a book of that time um so yeah this is the first james m kane novel that i've read and uh I, I liked it well enough that I'll, I'll probably end up seeking out more of his at, at some point or another. But um, Postman always rings twice. I would recommend seeking out some of the movie, movie adaptations if you're not much of a reader. There's a, it's definitely like a solid story at its core. So do they do they say the post is like is there a titular line? Is there a part where like the doorbell <laughs> rings and the, the the main character is like you know 
The postman always rings twice. You know, I was waiting for that um, because I watched the movie like years ago and didn't remember how the title factored in. Not only does that not happen, Chris, but there is not even a postman involved in the story at all. What? Um, and what a ripoff. I know. Evidently, there's some sort of there's been like, you know, a lot of debate and conversation about what the title is supposed to mean. And it's like this big metaphor. And uh, there, I, I had to go to the Wikipedia page afterwards and like why the hell is this called this? And there's all these theories and potential uh, reasonings and, and yeah, like metaphors based on other things. But um, yeah, I, I didn't get any of that uh, reading the thing. I was just very much like, you know, wanting to do the thing that happens in the movies all the time when the characters say the title and you just sort of pump your fist a little bit. So yeah. uh, that didn't, I, I was robbed of that experience, unfortunately, but ah, <laughs> oh well. All right, so let's get into what we've been watching. Um, I'll just I'll power through a few things really quickly. I wanted to mention the Severance finale, which uh, I think Peter talked about uh, maybe yesterday, maybe Friday on the show. Um, just I just I mean, you know, I talked to you about this, Chris, when I was watching the show, and you were like, "That cliffhanger! They better give us a season two. Thank God they are." Did um, you do what I do and yell "No" at the screen when it cut to black? Yeah, yeah, man, it was just. I mean, talk about a perfectly executed piece of television just like it really my wife and i were talking about it afterwards and and you know for like days after watching it we were just like man severance like god that's so good like just the it's rare that um that the pure execution and storytelling of something like that um sticks with us where we're talking about it you know days afterwards but that uh finale sort of met that bar for us and um i was saying that it reminded me a lot It, it it was like frankly, um, Spielbergian in, in, uh, the way that it was, um, the setups and paid payoffs and like the, uh, the, um, what would you call it? Like the, uh, the tension, the, the tension, way that the, yeah. the tension was built and, and everything sort of, um, the cross cutting and everything. Chris, I know you're like a, a Spielberg aficionado. Did you get that sense watching that? Did, did, did that, uh, did that comp pop into your head at all? Absolutely. And it's also, and I know this, this gets thrown around a lot also incorrectly uh the, the term hitchcockian and i actually think it it applies here in the way that it goes about uh like ratcheting up that suspense that that finale is just a perfectly put together uh finale like i i can't remember the last time like a season finale like blew me away like that where i was just like holy shit i got you know, like i i need a new season of this like immediately mm-hmm. and that, that the whole show just really snuck up on me like i watched it before i watched it before there was any buzz because i got the screeners and it was really just like something to watch like yeah i need some, we, we need my wife and i need something to watch this put on and very very slowly it just slowly built up and i was like holy shit like this is a really good sh-. like i i don't want to besmirch apple because they have some good things but i was almost like this is almost like too good <laughs> for apple because like their shows don't generate a lot of heat like i feel like ted lasso is the only thing they had before now that that really was talked about Mm -hmm. and it was like wow where the hell did this come from like yeah man i I was so thrilled with it and just like thinking back on it too i haven't rewatched the finale or anything but just like the simplicity of it that that i think is what the is where part of that spielberg comp for me came from it's just like you know, he, he doesn't overcomplicate things. He's not JJ Abrams. You know, there's not like too many plates spinning at once. It's just like, it feels like you're in such good hands. There's the exact right amount of, um, things to cross cut between and, and, uh, parallel stories running at the same time. And I mean, it's just, yeah, 
perfect stuff. So um, if you have not seen Severance, please catch up with it. You'll you'll definitely want to before the second season, which I don't know when that's going to happen. Maybe hopefully next year or something. Um, I don't know if the pandemic is going to uh, rear its head in any way and, and sort of affect that production. But um, man, I just like, <laughs> like you, Chris, I'm like, ah, God, give me that second season right now. So, wow. Um, all right. And then I also wanted to give another quick shout out to uh, Our Flag Means Death, which I talked about last time I was on a mini water cooler episode. And uh, I'm, I think, seven, eight episodes in now. I think I, I think I just finished the eighth episode last night. And man, this show is like so much better than I thought it was after three episodes. Because I, I mentioned uh, early on that Taika Waititi plays Blackbeard and he is kind of barely in the first couple episodes. He's maybe like alluded to or, or pops up in shadows. And then he really becomes like a central part of the show. Him and the relationship between uh, him and uh, Reese Darby's character is like the beating heart of the series. And it's just so, so good. So um, I just wanted to, I'm, I'm not quite done with the, the first season yet. Uh, but if anybody was on the fence about it, I encourage people to, to dive in and check that out. That's on HBO Max. And then um, I also saw the first episode of One Perfect Shot. Chris, did you know that this was a show? Have you seen the first episode? Have you seen any of the show at all? No, I, I I have no interest in watching almost any of the episodes except the Michael Mann one. I just haven't watched it mm. yet. I, I haven't. I I put that episode in my queue, but all the others, I'm just like, eh, I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. Yeah, the, the lineup. So there's only six episodes in this first season, and the lineup of names is not like um, you it's know the, very the powerhouses that yeah. I would hope. Because um, I think when the when the show was first announced, I think I feel like Spielberg's name was attached, and there were some some more heavy hitters. But um, like one of them is like Aaron Sorkin, and I'm sorry, like I right. I like Aaron Sorkin right. more than most people. I think he's actually a really great writer. He is not a great director. So to be like, we need to focus on his shot composition is like, really? That you couldn't find anyone other than Aaron Sorkin? Yeah, I think that's the perfect example of just like, you know, it seemed like a big name and it was somebody that they could get, but it doesn't really... um doesn't really understand the assignment in the same way that I wish they would. But the, like Michael Mann, I haven't watched that episode. He's the last one of the season. But uh, he talks about the the shootout sequence from Heat, the bank robbery sequence. And like that is a perfect example of what the show should be. Um, the first episode actually was a really good representation of what the show could be. And that was a Patty Jenkins episode where she talks about the... Um, the no man's land sequence in wonder woman. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we, we covered wonder woman extensively when that movie was premiering and we did our own interviews with everybody involved with that, that film at the time. And I feel like I, you know, certainly more than the average viewer have a pretty good sense of like what went into making that, um, that sequence. And watching this episode, I was surprised that there were some things that I didn't know about. And it also does a good job of like, laying out Patty Jenkins journey as a filmmaker. And it has like, uh, it's not just limited to that one sequence. There is, that is like a majority of the artistry and and the craft that they talk about in terms of like, here are, here's what the production designer did. Here's what the costume designer did. Here are, you know, they, they do a good job of sort of spreading the love and highlighting a lot of different aspects of the production that, that went into creating this, this iconic, this quote unquote, one perfect shot. Um, but, uh, I, I appreciated the, um, like, uh, I guess like biological component of it, like the, or biographical component of it rather, where like they, they actually go into Patty Jenkins story a little bit. She talks about where she grew up and it's, it's, it's more of like a, a blending of, um, a sort of broader interview with this sort of hyper-specific look at, uh, this right. one thing. So yeah, I, I was a little bummed to see, um, you know, like I, I like John M. Chu, uh, the filmmaker, you know, well enough. Um, but like, he's another one where like 
there's a, a the wedding sequence from Crazy Rich Asians is on there, and like, uh, or or um, yeah, Aaron Sorkin like the, the trial to Chicago Chicago Seven, or um, who else is on here? Cassie Lemons for uh, the Harriet Tubman movie. Uh, That's another thing. Like, she's made such better movies. <laughs> like, she made a movie called Eve's Bayou. Like, why not focus on that? That's like a great movie. She made another movie called uh, The Caveman's Valentine, which I don't think anyone knows about. Is that, a, is that a Samuel Jackson movie? Yeah, and I feel like that there's a great opportunity. Tell people about this movie that few people even remember and point out that it's a good movie. But it's like that the Harriet Tubman movie that no one seemed to right. like. Like, that's the... I don't know. It's just like... I know it sounds like sour grapes or whatever, but like, like I feel like if you're going to use this premise, you should really bring in better people than this. Yeah. So I, I, um, I wanted to watch a little bit of it just to hopefully like juice the numbers enough to enough to like encourage them to come back with a second season and maybe they'll actually do, you know, live up to the, the premise a little bit more. So I, I may click around and I'll certainly be watching the Michael Mann one. Um, I may be clicking around and, and seeing some of the others, but I just wanted to sort of put that on a lot of people's radar because uh, this is one of those shows that I don't think HBO Max has done like a great job of, um, of promoting. Like I, I sort of didn't even know that it was on there until uh, I, I happen to just notice. So um, One Perfect Shot is on HBO Max. And then finally, I watched a movie called Strong Room from 1962. This movie, Chris, I feel like this is very much up your alley in, in for no other reason than it's an hour and 20 minutes long, um, <laughs> which is, uh, is, is like, you know, uh, a great thing to hear these days. But yeah, um, Quentin Tarantino talked about this in, uh, I think it was the Empire podcast last year in this big conversation he had with Edgar Wright, where the two of them were just like, talking about movies that they were watching during quarantine and just sort of recommending things to each other. It was a really great podcast episode. If you haven't listened to it, I would encourage you to go back and, and try to find that one. But Strong Room has this great premise. It's, it's about uh, this bank robbery that happens. And I think this is in England somewhere. And uh, the manager and his like secretary are uh, are trapped in a in a, a vault, basically the strong room, this sort of like panic room-esque thing where the, a bunch of money is kept. And the, the robbers realize like oh crap the cleaning ladies are here so we have to throw the manager and this um this uh, secretary in this room and lock them up in order for us to make a clean break and get out of here and then they have to figure out okay there's only so much air in that room we can't leave them there because then if if they end up dying and we get uh you know fingered for this we're gonna be murderers so we have to figure out a way to actually get these people out and then things just start going wrong, like left and right. And it becomes more and more difficult for them to actually get their, find their way back to the bank and try to essentially break in again to get these people out that they locked in so they could get away the first time. It's a really cool premise. Um, yeah, like I said, hour 20, just like a short sort of, um, you know, really uh, effective, like no fat on it kind of thriller. So uh, yeah, that sounds called, neat. I've never actually even heard of this. That's yeah, neat. I hadn't either until Tarantino brought it up. Um, but he was he was very effusive with his praise about it. And uh, I added it to a my I found a version of it on YouTube, which I think is how he recommended it, because I don't think it's streaming anywhere. But there's like a really garbage quality, like 240p or something on YouTube. Wow. And I started watching it and I was like, man, I don't know if I can deal with this quality because it's so bad. Um, but the story actually is so good that by the end of it, I I like completely forgot that I was watching something in, in such a low uh, uh, yeah. quality level or whatever. I was just like completely sucked into the story. So uh, Vernon Sewell was the director of that movie. It's called Strong Room. And yeah, as of right now, there's a, a free copy just out there 
on YouTube. So um, that's how I watched that. Chris, what have you been watching? Uh, I watched Russian Doll season two, and I believe you watched it too, Ben. Um, I did. Yeah. I forgot to put this on the list. Yeah. So, uh, and I liked it. I, I think season one is far superior. Uh, and a part of me almost thinks it probably should have been a one and done thing just because I feel like it just, you know, it wrapped up in, in a society satisfying way that said, uh, I enjoyed being back with these characters. I just, I, 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 I was aware of Natasha Leone from her earlier work, you know, like American pie and stuff like that. But I had sort of just like stopped following her career. Like I never watched orange is the new black or anything like that. So when I saw her on that first season of Russian doll, I was like, when did Natasha Leone become like the coolest person yeah. <laughs> on the planet? Like she's just like strutting around this trench coat and constantly smoking cigarettes. And I was just like, she is like insanely cool. I don't know when this happened. So like after that, I was just like, I want to see her in more things. So I was, it's, it's great to be back with her in, in cool chain smoking mode. And I kind of like that they changed things up this season. Like the first season, obviously, had a time loop premise where they keep reliving the same day over and over again. Whereas this season they bring in sort of like time travel. And I was like, Oh, that's neat. The way they're changing that up. Uh, but it, it, it doesn't feel as fleshed out as season one. It, it feels sort of like kind of, they were just like, they kind of like ran out of ideas by the way, by the time the season ended. Uh, but at the same time, I do think it has like a really strong emotional through line. And there, you know, there's this whole thing about, uh, you know, accepting your family and accepting your surrogate family. And, you know, you, you know, you don't get to choose who your family is and mm-hmm. you have to just sort of live with that, you know, as, as shitty as that may be. And I thought that was a really interesting angle, but I just felt like the magic of that first season wasn't quite there. So what did you think? Ben? Yeah, I fully agree with that. And I actually um, like actively disliked most of this season because it was such a, a different thing. And and yeah, I, I fully like understand that, um, you know, this is going to be like very much like up some people's alley because that emotional through line and, and those themes that you mentioned, they do resonate in the end. But I just thought the show didn't quite earn the the. Um, moments of catharsis it got by the end of it. I thought that it it sort of, there was a long winding road to get to where it got to. And I just didn't think that the, the journey actually, was interesting enough. Yeah, it's weird because I actually think part of the problem is with Natasha Leone's character because, and I know this is going to sound like I'm, I'm contradicting myself because I'm just going to talk about how cool she is, but she's almost like too cool for the show. Yeah. Like, because her character is so like, strange and the way she like mutters to herself and the way she's always like smoking and she doesn't seem to actually learn the lesson the show is like suggesting she learns and like and i don't think it's a question of her performance because i think she's good i think it's it is like the writing like it doesn't Mm -hmm. seem like like by the end of the show it's like she's learned a lesson it's like has she she seems kind of like exactly the same right yeah and i think that's a big part of it and and like charlie barnett's character who i thought was great in the first season and they did this really interesting thing in season one where like she's caught in this time loop and you realize by the end of i think it's episode three or something that he is also caught in this time loop so the two of them have this really um interesting like meshed storyline where they spend the back half of season one trying to solve what's going on and and figure things out together and they have this like partnership element that i i really enjoyed charlie barnett in this season is just like 
I don't know what he's doing. They they had no idea what to do with him. So yeah, they they set up this whole plot line for him, and then they just sort of like abandoned it. And it yeah. was like, what the hell was that? Or like they saying they were season three or something? I don't know. Yeah, they actually like reached out. The the PR people actually like reached out like, hey, do you want to interview Charlie Barnett? And they gave me screeners for season two. Which is, is it all out already? Do you know? Uh, no, it's not out yet. It's coming out. Okay, soon. So I won't I won't spoil anything about what happens. Or but I, I watched the whole show thinking like, oh yeah, I really liked what he did in season one i'm sure he'll have plenty to do that's worth talking about in season two and because the the angle they pitched me was do you want to talk to charlie barnett i watched the whole season and was like well i no sorry i don't because like he just just does not have enough to do in the season it was a really weird thing um given how prominent his role was in season one but um there's there is some good stuff in here like the the imagery especially in the finale um i don't know if you have you ever seen stalker Chris, the uh, the Russian film. Yeah, the, yes. yeah. There's there's a moment near the end where like some of the framing and the, the production design is very much stalker. And I was like, wow, this is a, a cool reference. But yeah, kind of like what you're saying, like Natasha Leone just like walking around and quipping like a little bit too much and going a little too hard with some of her uh, just like the, the general vibe and attitude and like Annie Murphy from um, from what is the show Shit's Creek, Shit's Creek. Uh, pops up and, and she was like hyped as like a big part of season two and like she kind of doesn't really have a lot to do in the season either so yeah I was really um, expecting I like I think she what she has what she does with what she has is good but yeah I was expecting a lot more of her I was like yeah yeah so all of this just sort of combined into this like I really like soured on the show because I remember we did a, a thing I think Russian Doll season one came out in 2019 I think we did a podcast episode that was like what are, what are your favorite pieces of media, regardless of, um, you know, TV, movies, whatever, from the year so far or something? And I put Russian Doll season one in my like list of three things or something. It was that that I liked this, the first season that much. And this second season, I was just like, ah, man, this was just like almost a, a complete miss for me. But I know that we have some people on our staff who really enjoyed it and really connected with that that emotional stuff um yeah. in, in a way that i just did not so it is i think it's very much like a your mileage may vary type of situation but um for anybody who's hoping of like a hoping for like a, a direct repeat of season one it's not that it's just a matter of whether or not you're going to connect with what they're they're doing in the second season yeah um okay sorry for for hijacking that no, I, wanted, <laughs> I wanted to talk to you about it um what else have you been watching i finally got to see uh everything everywhere all at once which is um, i still have not seen it yeah this played at south by southwest our own jacob hall reviewed it out of there he gave it a 10 out of 10 uh and he was not alone you know the hype out of south by southwest has been huge um it's an 824 movie, so it's having like a kind of a slow rollout. And it finally opened wider last weekend. So I finally went and saw it. And it's, it's you know, it's it's a great movie. Um, I don't know if I loved it as much as Jacob. I probably would have maybe gone with like an 8 or 9 out of 10. I think it's like about 10 or 15 minutes too long. I think it sort of starts to overstay its welcome every now and then. But that it's a that's a very minor uh criticism because overall this is just a wonderful movie it's inventive it's emotional it's it's perfectly cast like everyone in this movie is just doing phenomenal work so this is one of those like yep you should really believe the hype it really is a damn good movie i'm sure it's going to end up on a lot of you know 
best of the year lists. So yeah. What about um, Jamie Lee Curtis in this movie? Because I, I think I saw like one trailer and I was like, oh, I'm in on this. I am not going to watch anything else. I know that I'm interested. I loved Swiss Army Man, the movie that these directors made before. So I'm like going to watch this. But um, I, I've seen a lot of talk, obviously, about Michelle Yeoh. And um, I think his name is Ki-Hu Kwan, who, who is like the guy. He's, who- <laughs> he's so good in this. He like he, Yeah, he's obviously he played Short Round and Data in the Goonies. And this is sort of like his big return to acting. And he is so good at like. It actually made me angry how good he is in this because it's like, I you know he retired for a while for personal reasons something like that. But it's like, God damn, we've been missing out on like decades of really good performances from this guy. And I really hope this sort of like brings him back. But to answer your question, Jamie Lee Curtis is great. Like I said, everyone is like, everyone in this movie is clearly game for all the crazy shit that happens, and they all like <laughs> they all just lean into it, and it just makes them all seem like really good sports for lack of a better term like because mm-hmm. i know there are some actors out there who would look at a script like this and be like absolutely not i'm not doing any <laughs> of this shit and the fact that everyone was like this is crazy and we're all on board and we're all going to give it our all uh it, it's just a it's just fun watching the like i want another movie like i don't want a sequel i just want another movie with the same cast doing something else i don't know if you remember this but uh, there's a movie called A Fish Called Wanda, and then years later they made a movie called Fierce Creatures, where it was not a sequel to A Fish Called Wanda, but it has the same exact cast, huh. and they're all playing different parts. And Jamie Lee Curtis is actually in both those movies, ironically enough. So she's in A Fish Called Wanda, and then she's in Fierce Creatures, and so is John Cleese and uh, Kevin Klein and Michael Palin, and it's a completely different story, completely different movie with different characters, but it's the same cast back at again. I always thought that was such a cool experiment, and I wish more movies would try that. And I, I want that to happen with this cast. I want them all to come back and do something else like that. Cause they all work together so well. And they're just, they're just a, a joy to watch. <laughs> Man, that's really cool. I, I saw a fish called Wanda when I was a kid. Cause my mom used to love that movie or probably still does. Um, do, was it the same director that came back for, I cannot and- remember. I feel like it has to be, but it, I, I want to say it's not. And Pierce creatures is not as good as a fish called Wanda, but, the idea that it's, you know, that, that same cast and, uh, yeah, what a cool concept. Yeah. So, yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. Um, okay. So, uh, well, I guess one, before we move off from this topic, what were your thoughts on Swiss army, man? I don't think I've talked to you about that movie. I loved it. I love Swiss army, man, because you know, when I, I went into it with the knowledge that most people went into it, that, you know, it's a movie about a farting corpse. And I was, you know, <laughs> I was expecting something wacky and zany and it is that, but it was also, so unapologetically like earnest and sweet. And that's what this movie is too, where it does like crazy over the top, weird, disgusting shit, but it also has like this really good heart and it makes you sort of like emotional in ways you'd like, I would never think a movie about a farting corpse would make me emotional. Mm -hmm. I would never. So then that's kind of what this is like, where it's, it's just like, it shouldn't work and it does. So, um, excuse me. I haven't seen the death of Dick Long, so I can't speak to that. I know it's the one of the Daniels directed mm-hmm. that, but uh, based on these two movies, I want these guys to just always work together because they work together so well and they clearly have such a unique perspective on things. So I can't wait to see what they what they do together next yeah the death of dick long is really interesting i saw it at sundance whatever year it came out and um it's it's not nearly as like balls to the wall wild as either swiss army man or what i you know can gather from everything everywhere all at once but uh it's very um it's like a a southern fried sort of coen brothers-esque uh 
like like a weird um, murder cover up kind of story set in like Alabama or something. It's it's a it's a, yeah quite the the experience. So I would recommend checking that one out for anybody who's uh, interested in the Daniels work. But um, you also saw a new movie from uh, one of your favorites, Robert Eggers. Yes, The Northman. I saw. Um, uh, that's not out yet, but it'll be out soon. And this was good. Um, I'm sad to say I did not love this as much as Robert Eggers' previous films. He His debut film was The Witch, which I absolutely love, and he followed that up with The Lighthouse, which I honestly think I like pretty much just as much as The Witch, maybe just a little bit more, but in a different way. And those were just two unique, strange, creepy movies with, you know, that, that just felt like, the you know, uh, this guy has a really unique filmmaking voice and i can't wait to see what he does next um this is like his biggest movie it has his biggest budget it's also in a lot of ways his most mainstream movie because you know it's a revenge tale and it plays out exactly as you would expect it to uh revenge wise you know it um it's actually it's based on like an old norse myth that inspired hamlet so it has almost like the same exact premise as hamlet where it's about this prince, his uncle kills his father, the king, and marries his his aunt. I mean, his mother, the queen, and uh, he, you know, he wants to get revenge. And so, it, you know, it's also the same premise as the Lion King, obviously. <laughs> so, yeah, the story is very familiar, and it unfolds in a way that is, for lack of a better word, predictable. At the same time, it does have a lot of those weird, unique, strange Robert Eggers isms, whatever you want to call them. So. Uh, I like this a lot. I think it's it's a damn good movie. It's just not as great as his previous two movies. Like I I want him. I was hoping for this to be like the Viking version of the witch or the Viking mm-hmm. version of the lighthouse, and it's really not that. It's more of just like a you know a straightforward action revenge film that has occasional bursts of weirdness. And I honestly don't know how people are going to react to this because. Like I said, even though this, yeah, I do really think this is the most mainstream of his movies. I saw this uh, at a critic screening with with a group of critics, and sometimes, man, you know, you can you can just tell an audience is not vibing with a movie, and I could tell the audience I saw this with did not like this. And like when it ended, I heard a bunch of people like playing like, "Whoa, huh?" You know, those sounds where people are just like, "That's it." So. If critics like I was with don't like it, I don't know. I really don't know how the hell the general public is going to take it. I'm very hmm. curious to see how they act. Man, that's interesting that you say that it's it's basically like a predictable kind of action movie because I feel like I read some stuff in the lead up to this film, which I've not seen yet personally, but um, that like, you know, if you're expecting a Robert Edgar's like, uh, you know, Viking revenge movie, it's not quite that. Like that, you know, I think people were trying to to sort of recalibrate expectations based on somewhat broad marketing or like the fact that it's going to be a pure action movie all the way through yeah. or something. Um, but what you're saying is, is it kind of is that I'm very curious about uh, studio interference here because I do know this got pushed a lot. And I do remember reading that it had some sort of like not disastrous, but not great test screening. So mm. I am very curious and I think we ran an interview with Robert Eggers the other day or a quote from an interview where he was talking about there, there was studio interference, but he kind of framed it as like, that's not a bad thing. You know, it's good to get notes, but I am very curious to see if like there was a different version of this that was more, uh, 
Eggers E, that you know, <laughs> before like because there are a lot of scenes in this movie. Um, I don't know if other people notice this as much as me, but it's one of my biggest pet peeves, and it's it's the the ADR exposition where, ah, yes. aka looping, where characters will be off screen, but they'll be talking, and they're talking in such a way that you can tell they're summing things up for people in the audience who have no idea what the fuck is going on. And there's a <laughs> lot of that in this movie where you'll cut to someone else, but you'll hear someone off camera being like, remember you have to get, you know, and it's like, ah, uh, like I'm, I'm positive. That was stuff they added like after the fact. So I'm very curious to see, to know if there's like a, uh, a different weirder version of this. Mm. But again, I do think this is a, a good movie. It's, it's well-made. It looks great. Uh, you know, there, there's, there's great cool stuff going on here. So I don't want to give the impression that, I dislike the film. I just, I was hoping for it to be better than it was. I wonder if like, if is part of the reason that you liked um, the witch and uh, the lighthouse a little bit more. Cause those movies kind of uh, have the ability to get under your skin a little bit. And this movie, because of like the, the, like by nature of it, uh, the, the inherent sort of straightforward actiony premise, it doesn't really have a lot of room to, um, to be like strange or eerie enough to, to sort of stick with you in that same way. Yeah. I, I think that's kind of it. Cause like watching the witch and watching the lighthouse, I was like, this is my, this is my jam. This is my aesthetic. Like this is like, these movies feel like what's going on inside my head <laughs> for lack of a better term, <laughs> like weird, creepy, esoteric, ancient, outdated, surreal shit. That's just like thrown at you and rendered in this really, meticulous way like Robert Eggers he started out as a set designer and his movies are very detail oriented he's obsessed with like uh getting like little details right and to to see all that thrown into this this weird strange cauldron with the witch and, and the lighthouse I was like this is this is my guy this is my new favorite filmmaker and even though there are weird things in this movie they're framed in very uh, mainstream ways like there's a part I, I i won't say more to give away spoilers but there's a part where something supernatural happens and then they easily explain it away as being like oh that was in the the main character's head and it's like ah, ah we don't need that explanation just let it be like a weird supernatural thing like i don't need it to be fr- like anything in this movie that happens that's supernatural is framed in a way that it's like well maybe it didn't actually happen and mm-hmm. i don't I don't need that. I don't need that clarification. Let it be weird and strange. And that's the stuff to me that feels like it was run through this sort of like mainstream audience filter to make it more appealing for, uh, you know, uh, Joe six pack out there and fly over country who doesn't, right. doesn't take kindly to that weird shit. So <laughs> do you know if, um, if there were ever any like director's cuts released for the witch and, or the lighthouse? <laughs> no, there haven't been. I know there's a, director's cut of midsummer which is a different director but it's that same sort of a24 weird aesthetic but there there aren't director's cuts as far as uh, I yeah know. and this is this is focus i think right like yeah focus this features is, this yeah. Focus, yeah hmm man i wonder i wonder if they would be able to actually like juice some of the the physical media sales by putting the robert edgar's cut on on a disc or something yeah uh, i would alongside, love that yeah. but 
That'd be cool. All right. Well, I think that's going to bring us to the end of today's episode of the show. You can find more about some of the stuff that we mentioned on today's show at SlashFilm.com and linked inside the show notes of this episode. SlashFilm Daily is published every weekday, bringing the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and mailbag topics to us at Peter at SlashFilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Tell your friends, spread the word. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you tomorrow.